you can turn your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are officially halfway through this book. The theme of Colossians chapter 3, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, is that Christ is over everything. That He is preeminent. He is the supreme ruler of all. That in the face of false teaching and empty philosophy that threatens to subvert that truth, Christ stands as supreme. And that if we as Christians would focus on that truth, that Christ is over all, not only would it defend us and protect us against false teaching, but it would fuel, it would motivate our very lives. And in Colossians chapter 1, we've seen the doctrine of Christ over everything, that He is preeminent. Chapter 2, we've seen the details about the false teaching and the empty philosophy and deceitful ways that were threatening the church of Colossae. And now in chapter 3, we're going to start to see the practical application of everything that we have read. In Colossians chapter 3, we see the details. We see how Christ over everything looks like in our daily lives, in our homes, in our own hearts. Christianity is the only way of life that works. Do you believe that? Not only is it the truth, but it's the only way that works. If we fully believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then we should fully expect that the Christian life is the only way to live life as it was designed to be lived. It succeeds where other philosophies fail. And in fact, more and more, I think our culture is starting to realize how hopeless and empty life is if you don't have Jesus. As our culture degrades, our confidence in our own ability to come up with morality, to come up with truth, will degrade as well. In fact, this past week, famous podcaster Joe Rogan, I don't know if I'm allowed to quote Joe Rogan from <laughs> I Am Today. Joe Rogan, if you're not aware, is, hosts the most famous podcast in the world. And he is a self-proclaimed agnostic. And he said this on his show just this past week. He says, I think as time rolls on, people are going to understand the need to have some sort of divine structure to things. Some sort of belief in the sanctity of love and truth. And a lot of that comes from religion. A lot of people's moral compass and the guidelines they've used to live life just, a just and righteous life, this comes from religion. And unfortunately, a lot of very intelligent people dismiss all the positive aspects of religion because they think that the stories are mere superstitious fairy tales. That they have no place in this modern world and that we're inherently good and your ethics are based on your own moral compass and we all have one. And Joe Rogan says, well, that's not necessarily true. We need Jesus. <laughs> and he says, if he came back now, that would be great. More and more, people are coming to the realization, I don't have the answer. I don't have goodness within myself. I need something outside of myself. And not just a system of religion, but as the esteemed theologian Joe Rogan said, we need Jesus. <laughs> We need a person, one who offers salvation and redemption and rescue. If we believe that Christianity is the only way that works, we should expect it for, to promote a way of life 
that is radically different than anything that this world can think up. In Colossians chapter 2, we've been highlighting the emptiness and futility of man-made systems and ideas. And now we're finally ready to turn the corner and see how the tr see the truth, Christ over everything, how that impacts our daily life. If Christianity is the only way of life that works, well then how does it work? We're going to be reading Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. If I were to summarize this passage in the form of a question, it would be, where is your focus? Where are you looking? In high school, I played soccer for a small Christian school. I was blessed, I was very uncoordinated, given my general lengthiness and lack of athleticism. Uh, very generally uncoordinated, where I would not have gotten into a sports team if I actually went to a big school. But it was a small Christian school to where if you can breathe and you have two arms and two legs, you can play soccer, you can play basketball, you can play anything. And, and I, 6'3", I was by far the tallest uh, in, in the school. And so, especially basketball, even though I, I, my stats were basically, you know, 25 rebounds and two points, right? I just keep getting my own rebounds and, uh, and miss every time. But anyway, I played soccer as well. And one thing our coach taught us was that when you try to score, your foot will follow where you're focusing. If, if you're thinking about the goalie as you're approaching the goal, if you're thinking about that goalie, guess what? When you try to kick, you'll probably kick it right to the goalie. My particular skill wasn't that I kicked it right to the goalie, but I always kicked it right on the crossbar because I was trying to aim for that corner, aim for the side, and as a, and, and as a result, it always just ding off of that crossbar. And I told my friends, when you think about it, that takes more skill than hitting that big net, right? <laughs> But whatever I was focusing on, although I was technically trying to avoid it, because I was focusing on it, that's where my foot followed. Your foot will follow your focus. The same can be true of the Christian life. You'll most likely gravitate toward whatever you're focusing on, even if it's something that you're trying to avoid. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what's he saying? When I, when I am confronted with this law, don't do this, and I'm focusing on don't do this, what do I end up doing? I end up doing it. Sin within me starts to well up and take advantage an opportunity of the commandment. The very presence of the law is what compelled sin against the law. It's like the presence of a goalie makes you kick the ball right to him. It's possible to direct our Christian life in such a way where the focus is actually on what you're trying to avoid. Don't do this. Don't say this word. Don't watch this. Don't listen to this. And if that is where all of our attention, all of your focus is in the Christian life, I warn you, you'll probably end up gravitating toward those very things you're trying to avoid. Why? Because your foot will follow your focus. 
We actually see this contrast here in Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, serve as a contrast to Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If you look back up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, you see the phrase, if with Christ you died, and then the beginning of chapter 3, we read, if then you have been raised with Christ. And in this contrast, we see two different focuses. Focuses? Foci? Focuses? I never know. We'll go with focuses. That sounds more normal. Two different focuses. In human tradition, in man-made regulations, which we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, where is the focus? Well, it's on the man-made regulations, isn't it? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All the bad stuff you try to avoid. But what's the problem with this man-made tradition? They are of no use in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, verse 23. You still end up sinning. This is not to say that Christians should not point out sins that we must avoid. In fact, Paul in the following verses in chapter 3 will point out a lot of sins that we are to avoid or to put off. But the point of this passage is clear, that a life that is united to Christ is a life that focuses on something else. And so these verses serve as a summary or an overview of the verses to follow. The whole rest of the chapter will be giving specifics of the Christian life, but here we see it summarized. Specifically, these verses show us the underlying mindset that drives the obedience of the Christian life. In these passages, we are called to be compelled by joy. As we look in these, in these verses, verses 1 through 4, the first thing I want to point out is how in verses 1 through 2, we are called to live a life that is focused on Jesus. Do you notice that before you ever get to the right actions in this passage, you are called to have the right mindset. Godly actions flow from a godly mindset. We see this truth in the two parallel commands that we see in this passage. We see two commands. Verse 1, seek those things which are above. And number 2, set your mind or set your affections on things above. Paul calls us to begin with where we're seeking, where our focus is. And from that focus, our works flow out of. Legalism actually will reverse this process. Do these external things to produce a godly focus. But this is empty. This approach cleans the outside of the cup well, but it does not address the heart. To put it in terms of our passage before us, verses 1 through 4 produce what we see in the remaining verses. Your focus is what will motivate and compel you to put off what is earthly in you and put on works of righteousness. What captures your attention will drive your action, or as we said earlier, your foot will follow your focus. Colossians chapter 1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I want us to notice, first of all, the reason for our focus. What is the reason for our focus? This setting our minds, seeking the things which are above. We see it in that first phrase, if you have been raised with Christ. But Paul isn't saying this phrase with uncertainty. 
if could be translated since, since you have been raised with Christ, since this is true of your life, what is he doing here? He's pointing back, pointing the Christian back to their salvation and what happened at that point in their life. He is pointing back to their union with Christ, a truth that he has already referenced earlier in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, he says that we've been buried with him in baptism, which, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's a rephrasing of his exhortation in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What's the reason for our focus? It's what happened to us in Christ. If you've been raised with Christ... You might say that the focus of your life depends heavily on your understanding of your relationship to Jesus. If, you, if your walk with Jesus depends on how you received Jesus, then how do you understand salvation? And this introduces a very important doctrine, which many people call union with Christ. And if you want to understand the Christian walk then you must understand the idea of union with Christ. Let me ask this question. When you got saved, what do you think happened? Was it simply a transaction that you made with God? I prayed a prayer, and I get out of hell. Do you view it as simply free grace that allows you to live without fear? How you view your salvation will fundamentally impact where your focus of life is. And where your focus of life is will fundamentally impact how you live life. Scripture says that when you got saved, if you have called on the name of the Lord for salvation, what happened? You were raised with Christ. Which means your very identity, the very purpose and essence of your life was fundamentally transformed through the work of Christ. If our works flow out of our focus, then our focus flows out of Christ's work for us. We have been raised with Christ. And this is a passive verb. This is, this is pointing to something that Christ has accomplished in us. When we are saved, we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. We are one with Jesus. His life is now our life. When you call on Jesus to save you from your sins, you are asking him to do a work in your life that changes the very essence of who you are. Scripture describes our union with Christ as uniting to his death on the cross, that our old self is crucified, put to death, so that the life of Jesus could live through us. Even we read this morning in Colossians, or Romans chapter 6, the same principle, same idea. Do you not know that all of us who have been raised, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you view your salvation like that? 
that when you called on the name of the Lord to save you, you have been united to him. Your old self has been crucified with him and buried with him. And you, have you are raised with him to walk in newness of life. You have a fundamental transformation of your very identity. Do you view it as Paul did in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is all that what's being said in that phrase, if you have been raised with Christ. He's pointing back to your salvation. And since this has happened to you, if you have been united to Christ, then seek those things which are above. That is the reason for our focus, what Christ has already done. But then let's look at the direction of our focus. Where are we called to look? If we are united to Christ, we are to seek and set our minds on things above. Well, what are these things? If you've been with us for the study, you might remember that the false teachers had an ungodly preoccupation with the heavenly realm. They were talking about worship of angels and visions. Couldn't one say that these false teachers were trying to get Colossians to set their minds on things above? As they go on in detail about visions, well, so what are these things? What are these things that are above? Well, Paul actually defines these things for us in the very next phrase. Set, set your mind, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And here we see the contrast between Christianity and false teaching. While the false teachers were preoccupied with the heavenly realm, the focus of Christians go directly toward the throne room of God because Jesus is there. You might say the direction of our focus is on a person, not a place. False teachers focused on earthly regulations in order to reach a heavenly realm. But Christianity focuses on a heavenly reality on Christ to help them live faithfully in the earthly realm. In contrast to false teaching that sought to transcend the physical world, Paul calls on Christians to live in the physical world with an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective with Christ in the center. But the direction of our focus is not just on the person of Jesus, but also his status and his sovereignty. How is Jesus described? We are to focus on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so what about Jesus should be our focus? I believe it's a focus on his finished work, that he is seated. He has accomplished the work of redemption. When he broke his body and shed his blood for us, he accomplished eternal redemption forever, and he is done. It is finished, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. The focus is not on what we must achieve. The focus is on what he has accomplished. What is your eternal perspective? It's things above where Christ is seated, that he has accomplished the work of redemption for you. But he is also seated at the right hand of God. It's a focus on his finished work, but also a focus on his sovereign rule. He is seated, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. He is the preeminent ruler and authority over all of creation. The focus is not on the status that we can reach. The focus is on his absolute preeminence over my life. Remember what we said earlier, what captures your attention will drive your action. If that is true, what kind of action would be produced in someone whose attention is captured 
by the sufficient work of Jesus and his sovereign rule over all things. How could those two truths impact your decisions? Jesus has done it all, and Jesus is over all. Well, the specifics of that answer will be fleshed out in the verses below, so come back next week to get the details. <laughs> For now, let me simply say, if, you're, if you orient the very focus of your life on the gospel of Jesus, what he has accomplished for you, if you focus solely on his supreme rule over all creation, if those become the biggest and most important realities in your life, it will change your actions. It will capture your affections to the point that your manner of life is fundamentally reoriented. You see, the direction of our focus is things above. What about the intensity of our focus? We're given two parallel commands about focusing on things above. In verse 1, we're called to seek those things which are above. In verse 2, we're told to set our affection on things above. The second verb is really an intensification of the first. To seek is a simple verb describing one's desire or aim. But the second verb, to set, communicates giving careful consideration, setting your mind and your will on something. In other words... This command is not telling us just to think about Jesus a lot or think about heavenly thoughts. Rather, it's describing, as one theologian states, a fundamental orientation of the will. It is to be fixated on Jesus and who he is and what he has done. All of the attention of our spiritual lives should be oriented toward the person of Jesus. We actually see this intensity of focus vividly described in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a preoccupation, one might even say obsession. It is to be fully focused, not on something that you don't have and must obtain, but on something you already have received. You've already been united in Christ. What has grabbed your affection in this life? What do you live for? If you answer that question honestly, you should be able to see how your actions each day find its source in that, this, that affection. This is not a difficult concept to understand. If someone's affection in focus is toward a particular achievement, whether that be in the workplace or, or a sport or academic excellence, whatever it is, that, that driving focus, that driving desire you know how that naturally and immediately changes your actions. Almost immediately, if your focus is in one thing, your actions follow. So what has grabbed your affection in this life? What do you live for? This intensification of the command in verse 2 is presented in order to provide a contrast in that second command, set your affection or set your mind on things above, is given to us so that we are, seen, we are faced with a contrast. We've seen the direction, the reason, and the intensity of our focus, and now he threatens, he highlights what threatens to steal our affection, the enemy of our focus. We are called to set our mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. 
Now, the definition of these things, these earthly things, are not as readily apparent, but it is clear from the context. If you look at just chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 2, we, we, he has talked about and called out the earthly traditions and teachings that threaten to pull us away from Christ. And in chapter 3, he'll warn about earthly desires and affections that compete for our affection with Christ. So the things of this earth, you might say, are both the desires and the teachings that compete against the supremacy of Jesus, that distract us from focusing on Christ. Really, anything that is not focused on Christ, you could describe as things of this earth. There are two types of people in this world. Those whose minds are focused on eternity and those whose minds are focused on their own ideas, their own desires, and their own appetites. And what is Paul calling on us to do? He's saying, focus on what is eternal. Why do you spend all of your energy and all your focus on earthly things that will fade away and disappear when this life is over? And yet we drive all of our attention and all of our desire toward these earthly things rather than Christ who gave all for us. Listen to how this contrast is presented in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's one way to live. Your God is your own appetite. You glory in what should bring shame, and your minds are set on earthly things. But verse 20, we see the contrast, which should be true for Christians. But verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does your focus on Jesus Christ drive your daily life? Does your battle against sin find its strength from your focus on Christ? It's a wonderful song entitled, Oh God, My Joy, that I think describes this way of life. The lyrics read, Oh God, my joy, you reign above in radiant splendor and beauty. Your word has drawn my heart to love the awesome sight of your glory. Your blazing light and gospel grace shine brightly from my Savior's face. No other wonder would I see than Christ enthroned in his glory. Do you see that heavenly focus? That obsession with Christ? Next verse says, the final verse says, Compelled by joy, I fight the sin that turns my gaze from your glory. Your Holy Spirit dwells within, his presence arms me for victory. Let death and hell against me rise. Through death I'll gain eternal joys. All powers of hell will bend the knee before my great king of glory. In that song, we see a wonderful definition of what it means to focus on things above and not on the things of this earth. What are the things that turn your gaze from his glory? What are the sins that deaden your love for Christ? What are the teachings that you have believed that compete with Christ's supremacy? Anything that turns your gaze from Christ's glory is of this world. Those things that are not worth your focus. It could be confidence in your own flesh, your own achievements. It could be, as the passage continues to address, your own immorality and evil desire. 
The Christian life begins with a proper focus. A focus on Christ who is enthroned in heaven, to whom you have been united in his death and resurrection. The one who has completed your salvation and is Lord of all. That is your focus. But this passage continues to explain and develop the theological truth that undergirds these commands to focus on Christ. In other words, Christ, Scripture does not simply say, just focus on me without giving you sufficient theological grounding as to why you should focus on him. Why should we have such an all-consuming affection and preoccupation with our risen Savior? I believe it's exactly as it's phrased in that song. It's because we are compelled by joy. False teaching will motivate you with fear. Fear of not measuring up, fear of missing out. False teaching will motivate you with pride, false promises of a higher status. But Jesus motivates you to live the Christian life with joy. Joy rooted in what he has accomplished for you. So Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, tells us that we are to live a life that is focused on Christ, but secondly, live a life that is fueled by joy. After the commands to seek and set your mind on things above, we read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ who is your life appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. What joy is expressed in these verses? What security and confidence? What hope and assurance? And these verses could read so differently, couldn't they? Notice it doesn't say, seek those things which are above, for if you don't, you will receive God's disapproval, you will miss out on God's best, you won't attain your highest potential. No. God says, seek the things which are above because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And someday when Jesus himself appears, you also will appear with him in glory. These verses are compelling you to obey through joy. They are securing you in his love. They are establishing you in his faithfulness. It is our human tendency to scare people into obedience or manipulate them into obedience by appealing to their pride. But what does Jesus do in these passages? It is the joy of the Christian that compels the obedience of the Christian. If you want a reason as to why you should set your mind on Christ, here is your answer. He points to two things. First of all, the joy of our present reality. In verse 3, he points back yet again to your union with Christ, for you have died. You have died with Christ just as you have been raised with Christ. That to focus on earthly things is, consistent with your, is inconsistent with your present reality. This is what he says in Colossians chapter 2, 20, verse 20, when he asks why those who have died to the world were submitting to regulations as if you were still alive in the world. All of that stuff that the world is going after, you're dead to that. You have been united to Christ. And when we read what I think is, is, what is one of the most comforting phrases in Scripture, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christian, this is your present reality. And if you would only take some time to grasp the significance of this phrase, whatever you're going through this morning that perhaps is bringing you discouragement, giving you feelings of hopelessness about your ability to to even live for Christ? 
take time to consider this phrase. You experience, if you, if you take time to consider it, you'll experience the joy that it brings. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This phrase brings out three truths for me. Number one, security. It speaks of safety. Christian, you are already hidden in the life of Christ. Your future hope is already secured in the present. No one will pluck you out of his hand. Now that you have been united to Jesus, you are safe in him. You are, you, you are hidden in Christ. Not only does it speak of security, it speaks of sufficiency. We've already seen that hidden language in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we see that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we are hidden in Christ. We have no need to seek for sufficiency and satisfaction elsewhere. Jesus calls us to abide in him in John 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, sufficient. You are hidden in Christ and you need nothing else. Thirdly, it speaks to identity. For your life, is hidden, for your life to be hidden in Christ is to lose any sense of self-identity or aspirations. Jesus Christ is your very identity. Your life has been swallowed up in his. In the very next verse, Paul will describe it as Christ who is your life. Your identity is in Jesus. He has remade you and redeemed you. I hope, Christian, that those truths fill you with joy. Doesn't it fill you with enough joy to actually set your mind on him? If that is true, if he has hidden you with himself, doesn't that fill you, compel you with joy to set your mind on things above where Christ is, to live your life fixated on the one who is seated on the throne? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us, controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We find joy in our present identity. We are hidden with Christ in God, but he's not done. There's an even greater joy that compels us, the joy of our future destiny. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not only has he given us the joy of our present identity, but he's given us the joy of our future destiny. In the present, we are hidden with Christ in God, but one day we will appear with Christ in glory. And our present identity in Christ ensures our future destiny. The present life of the Christian is motivated, driven, and fueled by the confident expectation that we will one day be with Jesus. And now our eyes are fixed on him. Our lives are hidden with him. But one day we will see him with our own eyes. We will appear with him in glory. And it is this truth that compels the Christian to live joyfully in this life to the praise of his glory. Do you, have you made the connection in your mind between the hope of eternity and your obedience today? 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3 gives us this connection. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. There's our present identity. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The joy that comes from our future destiny, our present identity, will impact the focus of our very life, and the focus of our very life will impact the decisions and choices of our very life. The Christian life is focused on Jesus and is fueled by joy. Again, as we contrast the methodology of false teaching, false teaching enforces external regulations in order to give you a heavenly perspective so that you may have joy. Actions leads to mindset, leads to joy. The work of Jesus completely reverses that process. The finished work of Christ and the promise of eternity fill us with joy to the point that it changes our perspective, it changes our focus. And this renewed focus transforms our actions. So while false teaching goes actions, leads to mindset, leads to joy, the scriptures say joy leads to mindset, leads to actions. Christianity is the only way that works. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And so we ask that question again. What is the focus of your life? Are you focused on earthly things? Do the things of this world consume you? If so, what's the answer? And what I say this morning is the answer, if your focus is on the wrong place, the answer is not, well, I just need to go and start doing all the right things in order to change that mindset, in order to get that joy. No, that's what the false teachers say. If your focus is wrong, where do you go? You go back to the finished work of Christ. You go back to the reality of the gospel that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Because the, 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 change, the wrong focus that you have is based off of a lack of or a wrong view of how you are thinking about your salvation. You go back to what Christ has done in your life. You are hidden with Christ in God. He has promised eternity to you. And God has given you these things so that you might be so filled with joy that you might be compelled with joy. That the joy of salvation changed to a, changes, changes your heart and mind to give you an eternal focus. And as you have that eternal focus, it impacts your actions. What fuels your life? Is it fear or pride? Or is it compelled by joy because of Christ's sufficient work and future promise? My prayer is that you are compelled by joy. And starting next week, we're going to see specifically what does joy compel you to do? What sins does joy compel you to put off? That you are so gripped by the gospel, that you are so gripped by what God has done for you and in you, that you look at these sins that you once treasured and you put them off. What 
What deeds, what works, what righteous acts does joy compel you to put on? How do you interact with each other? How, what is, how does your relationships with other people, how are those impacted by your joy? We're going to see even in chapter 3, how does this enter into your family? How does the joy of Christ and his supremacy overall, how does that impact how a husband treats a wife and a wife treats a husband? How does it impact how a father treats his children and children treat their parents? All of these things are rooted in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. May you be compelled by joy, by the reality that Christ is over everything. But let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us the truth, the way, and the life. Lord, I thank you for initiating the work in us. While we stood as sinners condemned, you entered our world. You saved us. You united us to yourself. You filled us with joy so that you might change our focus. Lord, I pray that we would find lasting joy, not in the deeds we do, but in the work that you have done. And that joy would compel us to live lives that reflect that joy in this world.